What's happening, Dave? Been a busy week. Busy week. Busy week, but now it's the weekend. Mm. Life is good. Today's episode, we are talking about the first show from the Dead's legendary Europe 72 tour. Friday, April 7th, 1972 at the Empire Pool, also known as the Wembley Empire Pool or the Wembley Arena in London, England. So this is being released on April 5th, 2022, which is just two days before the 50th anniversary of this show and the kickoff of this, as I said, legendary Grateful Dead tour. I think this is probably the most legendary tour in Grateful Dead history. Yes, like back to front, not necessarily show, but entire run of shows. I agree. The Dead have released this entire tour as a massive, massive box set, I believe in 2011. And I think that that just shows how highly they think of it as well, that they released all 22 shows as a 60-disc box set. And fortunately for us and Grateful Dead fans everywhere, Unlike some uh, box set releases, the entirety of this is available on Apple Music, Spotify, Prime Music, wherever you do your live streaming of, or your streaming rather, of music, you can find this entire tour, just about, in high quality soundboard recordings, which is awesome. It makes it so easy to listen to. It's it's a great quality uh, recording, and... Um, and yeah, I think that that just shows how special this tour was, that they released the whole kit and caboodle. Well, Dave, I think we should get into the days between. We should. There were days, there were days, there were days So... Do you have anything? Do you want to start us off? I started off last time. Fair is fair. I, I have something. It's not Grateful Dead related. I said it's been a busy week because we just adopted a new little puppy. Her name's Molly. She's half Great Pyrenees, half Black Lab. Uh, she is adorable, but she is feisty. And she's keeping us busy. But it's been a great time. Just, you know, waking up at three in the morning to take her out to make sure she can make it through the night. A um, little sleep deprived, little uh, hands are a little scraped up with teeth marks, but <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. It's worth all of those things that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Naturally, when you told me that you were getting a girl dog, I started thinking about all of the Grateful Dead related girl dog names that this dog could have. Could be Rose, Bertha, you know, Sugary, <laughs> Althea, you know, there's there are a lot. The closest I could find for Molly is uh, there's this song that the dead, I don't even know if they ever played it live. It's called Whiskey in a Jar. Bob Weir just played it live a couple nights ago. Um, but there's a great, great YouTube video. I'll see if I can find it on the archive to pull into this. But the dead were like warming up, like practicing for a tour in 1993. And Jerry just starts playing this old Irish tune, Whiskey in a Jar. And Molly is mentioned in that. But it's a really great tune. There's no reason for you to have heard it, Dave, but I'll send you the link after. It's so cool. Because they're just like, you know, fucking around 48 years into, or sorry, 
28 years into their existence as a band and they play it and Phil's like, what was that? That was so great. <laughs> Jerry's like, I don't know. I just remembered it. Like the whole song just came to me. It's an old one. Um, but it's wow. very cool and like folksy. That's a deep cut for sure. It is. But yeah, she's, she's great. She's keeping us busy. Um, yeah. Apologies that that's not Grateful Dead related, but that's been the, that's been the last week. No, that is more than fair. So I woke up one morning last week with Sugar Magnolia in my head. I, you know, sometimes that happens. You wake up with a thought or something. As you do. Yeah. And for some reason, Sugar Magnolia was in my head. And I, for some reason, thought if I turn on Sirius and listen to This Day in Grateful Dead History or Today in Grateful Dead History with David Lemieux, I bet Sugar Magnolia is going to be in it. And it was. And I was like, what are the freaking odds that that would actually be the case? Even weirder, the show that it was from is one that you and I are going to be talking about in about a month and a half. It was from 1993 in Rosemont, Illinois, uh, which is a show that we have marked marked off to do, I think, sometime in the summer. The curator and creator of the Dead Sound app, which should be coming out, I hope, soon, uh, he did an edit of these three nights at Rosemont, Illinois in 1993 that he took like the best of the three shows and structured them and edited them in a way that is like consistent with what a show's flow would actually sound like in 1993. And I thought that that was such a cool project that he undertook and a a really interesting way to uh, interact with the Dead's music. So we're going to do that one. His compilation basically of this three night run. Uh, later on in the summer and so I, just a weird coincidence on two levels that it's a show we're going to talk about and it was the song that I had in my head and really for some unexplainable reason felt certain was going to be on today in Grateful Dead history hmm. and it was just one of those nothing left to do but smile 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 moments <laughs> and um, another thing that's happening in the days between we can talk about now we're going to have a bonus episode coming out next Tuesday what what <laughs> Shortly after we record this, we are recording an interview about Europe 72 with Zach Cropper. Some of you may know from his podcast, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Fantastic podcast name. I love the, you know, the kind of rhyme that it has to it as a title. Um, And so Zach is going to join us to talk about Europe 72. He's done three episodes that are... I guess about 10 hours long of podcasting about Europe 72. Uh, One ranking all of the shows, one ranking all of the, the other one jams and one ranking all of the dark star jams. So he has engaged deep (laughs) Europe 72 and we're going to benefit from that by uh, having him on to talk about the tour. Well, let's get on to the show. So, Friday, April 7th, 1972, at the Empire Pool. We are back into the God Show era of the Grateful Dead, but this is the first time we've talked about a show from this brief window of time when Keith and Donna and Pigpen 
we're all in the Grateful Dead. And I think that that's something that makes this, this tour special. Pigpen, you can see a video of him from this tour and from around this time. He was not looking great, looking so skinny because uh, he was really sick. And he unfortunately did not have long to live at this point, but he kind of rallied to go on this tour with the band. A lot of people say that he kind of knew that it was a special thing that they were getting to do to go tour Europe as a band. And he didn't want to miss it, even though he wasn't feeling particularly good. He's playing organ a lot during this show, which leads to a two piano vibe, like a two piano sound a lot of the time because Keith is on the keys and Pigpen is on his Hammond B3 organ. And then at other times he's playing percussion like hand percussion, either a guiro shaker or maybe some other things. And harmonica. Oh, and harmonica. Duh. Yeah. So, uh, Keith and Donna, this is really close to their joining of the band. We've talked about them for two shows in the late seventies, but we haven't done any early seventies shows. And, um, Keith joined the band on October 19th, 1971. Donna's first official show with the band. She's said in many interviews that she thought it was important that this was something that Keith had first, the experience of being in the band. She wanted it to be a thing for him, which is very generous um, because the band wanted her to be in off the rip too, but it was something that he had wanted for himself. And so she basically said, I'm going to let him have this experience for a little while and then I'll see about joining. So her official show, first official show was just two weeks before the one we're talking about. It was on March 25th, 1972. Um, right before they went to Europe. So what's going on in the world in 1972? The top album is America by America. Uh, number two is Neil Young's Harvest Moon, which is, uh, I mean, th- those are both big albums. A Horse With No Name by America is still played on classic rock radio. I mean, probably almost daily. <laughs> Um, Harvest Moon, I think, is Neil Young's most critically acclaimed and beloved record, so both hold up. The top Billboard song is A Horse With No Name, uh, and number two is Heart of Gold by Neil <laughs> Young, you so it makes sense. You know, both of those songs were massive, and so, you know, the albums are at the top. Here's a fascinating one, Dave. The number five song on the Billboard is Michael Jackson, Rock and Robin in 1972. Not the Jackson 5, Michael Jackson. Michael was 13 years old and already eight years removed from his first Billboard hit with the Jackson 5. Wow. He never stood a chance. That means he was five (laughs) years old when he was first in the national spotlight. Yeah. That's crazy. Good Lord. That is absurd. I saw that and I was like, Rockin' Robin, I, I can picture his version in my head, but it doesn't sound like like ABC era Michael Jackson. And so I looked it up and was just blown away by that. April 7th, a lot of birthdays. Uh, a lot of musical birthdays too. Billy Holiday, Ravi Shankar, John Oates of Hall & Oates, all born on April 7th. Hmm. Uh, also... Jackie Chan and Russell Crowe. So a couple of good actors and one legendary filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola's birthday is April 7th and his most famous movie, the Godfather released in theaters on March 15th, 1972. So he was only about a month into that 
experience of his life. Uh, of course, that movie would go on to win like every Academy Award, as it should. It's a masterpiece. But where does this relate to the Grateful Dead? Francis Ford Coppola was at a Grateful Dead show later on in the uh, 70s and was very intrigued by what Bill and Mickey were doing with the sound and got them to do soundtracks or part of the soundtrack for Apocalypse Now. So there's a Grateful Dead connection with everything, um, including Francis Ford Coppola. That's kind of what was happening. Anything else that you picked up on that was going on in April of 1972? Just more specifically about the dead. They go over to Europe. They're supposed to play shows at the Rainbow Theater a 3,000 seat venue, um, but the venue closed a little bit before they got over there. And so, you know, their, their manager is trying to find them another space to play. And then a smaller venue, the Commodore was booked and publicized as a replacement, but it's, it was too small for them to, they thought make enough money. So they nixed that. And then they booked the two shows at the Wembley Empire Pool and and then here we here we go using that as a transition let's talk about this venue a little bit so the Empire Pool as it was known when they were here in 1972 was built in 1934 as the swimming pool that would be used for the British Empire Games hence the name the Empire Pool it was then renovated just a little bit in 1948 to be a spot that was used during the Summer Olympics that were in London in 1948 and there was a, basically, uh, you can picture at some multi-purpose arenas that we have now where there's an ice skating rink and then they f- roll out the parquet so that basketball can be played on top of it. This was the opposite. They had the swimming pool underneath and then they would roll out an ice skating thing over the top of it somehow. Oh. Yeah, so it would become an ice skating rink in the winter, which is kind of odd. Um, and then it became a concert venue. And so as you said, uh, Sam Cutler, the Dead's, road manager at this time he apparently was the driving force that got them to europe he had been the rolling stones tour manager before he became the dead's tour manager and he knew that they could really break through in europe he just needed to get them there and you can hear that in his intro to this show i think he says we've been trying to get here for a long long time and we eventually finally made it please welcome the grateful dead the grateful dead so again the empire pool that's what it was called at the time. Then it became the Wembley Arena, and now it's called, I think, the SSA Arena at Wembley or something like that. Concert capacity of 12,500, making it the second largest concert venue in London, only trailing the O2 Arena. And every great British band played there. The Beatles did four times, Led Zeppelin, T-Rex, David Bowie, The Who, Rolling Stones, Genesis, Pink Floyd, The Eagles, Bruce Springsteen, Queen, Dire Straits. It became a huge concert venue uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s. And the Dead actually returned to this venue for shows on October 30th and 31st, 1990, then with Vince Welnick and Bruce Hornsby. So a little bit less than 20 years later, they, they made a comeback. Obviously, on Halloween night, their encore was Werewolves of London, (laughs) (laughs) which is uh, very fitting, but also kind of cool. So that's this venue, uh, the Empire Pool, the Wembley Empire Pool, as it's listed on this 
on this uh, album. The year itself of 1972 in the Dead's touring act, they played 86 shows as the Grateful Dead that year, which is almost the exact same number as 1971, but way down from their touring peak in 1968 to 70 when they were playing 140 plus shows every year. And it's interesting. There's a newspaper article that I found from England right around this time where they are asking Bob about how much they play on the road each year. And he said about 50 nights, which is an underestimate. And then he said that the night that they were doing this show, there was a uh, like bluegrass festival or a folk festival in town in London. And the artists were staying at the Dead's Hotel. And they were talking to one of the bands and saying, how many nights do you tour? And these guys said 150 to 200. And he said, so I thought about it and I thought, these guys probably think we're lazy just sitting back on the fact that we have a big name now. But that's not really the truth because I asked them how long they play for and they said 45 minutes. And we play for two and a half to three hours a night. So if we were going to play three hours a night and play 200 shows, there would just be no way to survive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it is. So he was like, I think that it evens out. We end up playing for the same amount of time as them. So in 1972, they took really the first few months of the year off from touring. They were doing other important things at that time, namely recording the Ace album released by Bob Weir, which was recorded in January, February, and March of 1972 and released on May 1st, 1972. Uh, Those songs... I mean, that's virtually a Grateful Dead album. Everyone in the band was on it. And so many of the songs from that album became mainstays in the Grateful Dead's touring repertoire immediately and stayed there until 1995 and continue to be for Bob Weir today. When they did get back to touring on March 5th, they started a couple nights in um, at Winterland in San Francisco. And then they traveled east to New York City where they played eight shows at the Academy of Music in New York City, presumably to start heading off the time difference of going to Europe because they did basically the end of March in New York City and then it would only be a five-hour time difference to get to English time as opposed to the eight-hour time difference from San Fran to London. During that break between January, their New Year's run, and March, Jerry Garcia was playing a lot live. He had shows with David Crosby and Graham Nash. Uh, a lot of shows with Merle Saunders, who would be a creative partner of his for a long time still to come, and Howard Wales um, all during that break. But then they have these shows in New York City. Pretty cool shows. I've heard a, a good number of them. There's one where they play with Bo Diddley, which is kind of cool. There's like a first set with Bo Diddley and then a second set and a third set that's just the Grateful Dead. That's really cool. And this is also the time when uh, Donna joins the band, as I said, on um, March 25th. That's the fifth night of the eight that they played in New York. So then what happens after that? Obviously, you have the Europe 72 tour, 22 shows in just about 50 nights uh, throughout um, six countries in Europe. Then they take a little break until July. They get back in, I think June, because they all took some time to travel around Europe after the tour got over, got back in July. And then they were pretty much playing nonstop from mid July to mid December. The longest they take off is maybe 10 days during that entire time period. And 
Um, as I said, this entire tour has been released as a box set, but there's also a lot of live releases from Fall 72, which is a phenomenal tour. Pigpen is not really performing with them at that point. His health was getting worse, but we have two shows from Fall 72 on the Listen to the River box set that came out last year, three different Dick's picks from Fall 72, one Dave's picks, and one download series. So lots of releases from 72. Another huge difference about this tour versus what we've heard from the late 70s is that this is one drummer dead. And this is the first show that we've talked about that's just Billy on the drums. And so we'll get into how we feel about that as we talk about the show. But that's a big difference on the Europe 72 tour because Mickey had left the band in 71. A couple of last things about the Europe 72 tour, which again, we're going to get into deeper in our next bonus episode that's going to come out next week. This is a really great time for the band to be, you know, releasing new stuff. The new, so their last album that had come out before this was Skull and Roses in 71. And these, all of these songs were new between that being released and this tour. Tennessee Jed, Jack Straw, Mexicali Blues, He's Gone, Comes a Time, Ramble on Rose, One More Saturday Night, Greatest Story Ever Told, Playing in the Band, Cassidy, Black-Throated Wind, Looks Like Rain, Chinatown Shuffle, Mr. Charlie, Deal, Sugary, Birdsong, Loser, and The Wheel. That's a ridiculously good set of songs. Yeah, it's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, it's just crazy because you think about the year before that or two years before that, 1970, you have Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. And then all of these songs, this is just a fertile period for the Grateful Dead putting out great songs. Mm-hmm. Really remarkable. Last thing about the tour, I'm sure that you, uh, many of you already know this, the band brought 40 plus people on the tour with them. All of their significant others, their entire road crew, and according to Bill Kreutzman, some hanger-on types that were just in it for the party, but the band liked a lot, so they brought them too. <laughs> um, they all had a daily stipend that was paid for by Warner Brothers in exchange for producing the live double album that would come out in November of 1972. So Warner Brothers said, okay, we want a new album. And the Dead said, pay for us to go to Europe with all of our friends for three months, and uh, then we'll do it for you. So they did. There are a ton of great tour stories from this uh period you can read any number of grateful dead books and hear about them i think that the one that is talked about in all of them is that there were two tour buses and the band and crew kind of self-sorted at the beginning of the tour one bus where the seats faced backwards they called themselves the bozos and the other where the seats faced forward called themselves the bolos and there was a big (laughs) kind of running joke of bozos and bolos fucking with each other for the entire tour just about everyone in the band was a bozo And so there was a show of this concert that you can, sorry, there was a show on this tour. You can see a video of where the band went on stage all wearing clown masks because they were bozos. And so kind of weird prankster-ish time, but I kind of dig it. All right. So let's get into the specifics of this, this show. As I said, this entire show was released as part of the box set. But there are also some of these songs that have been released in two other live Grateful Dead releases. Me and My Uncle, Not Fade Away, Going Down the Road, Feeling Bad, That those two segments, Me and My Uncle, and then the Not Fade Away, Going Down the Road, Not Fade Away suite were released on Europe 72 Volume 2, which is a, you know, a counter 
uh, counterpart to the original Europe 72 release that came out in 2011. The idea was to have another LP release of Europe 72 music that included no songs that were on the original Europe 72 release. So kind of a cool idea. Yeah. This show was recorded like all of Europe 72 by Dennis Wiz Leonard. He's a deadhead turned recording tech for the band. Did a phenomenal job. Uh, And I'm sure many of you have seen uh, Long Strange Trip already on Amazon Prime, which is an unbelievably good documentary. But episode three is the one that's about Europe 72. And the story that he tells about the morning dew that is on the Europe 72 album is just an absolute gem. So check that out if you have not already. All right, the set list. So 22 different songs played uh, on this set list. How many do you think we have never talked about before? Can I, can I count it real quick? Nine? Nine out of 22, that's like 40% is my guess. We have not talked about 14 of these songs. Oh my God. Amazing. I know because I feel like there are a lot of like chalk songs on this right. set list. And I would have thought that we'd talked about a lot of them, but we really have not. Beginning with the song that opens the show, Greatest Story Ever Told. This was a very, very common opener for the dead throughout the 70s. The number one most common opener of 72 was Bertha. This was number four of fourth most common. This is also the 12th, tied for 12th best version on heady version of this song, which makes a lot of sense to me. This is a really hot start to the show. Yeah, it's a good opener. And the guitarists, Bob and Jerry, right in sync with each other right off the bat. Yeah, they they really are. You're right. They they're locked in. All three guitar, all three strings are pretty well synced up and pretty with it with one another throughout this entire show. Mm-hmm. Really, the whole band is. Um, yeah. So, Dave, we before this we talked about a show from 1990, and I think that you and I had the same experience when we flipped to this recording on Spotify or Apple or whatever, just yeah. being like, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> the sound recording is so much better. This is amazing. Yep. We were just like, this is the, this has to be the best great, Grateful Dead show ever just because, I mean, listen to this. And then, you know, after a, a week of listening, being like, okay, m- maybe that was some shock factor. Yeah. Now I can see it through more honest eyes. But in right. the beginning, it's like, holy crap, this is a huge difference from 1990, which is so odd that it's 18 years before and the sound quality is so much better. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. It is what it is. So, yeah, I think that uh, Bob's vocals are really good on this song. The tempo is great. It's very deliberate, but it's just it's perfect for this song. And this is our first Donna shriek that we would really get. I'm not mad at it. I put a smile on my face. I was like, oh, she's back. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
also our first taste of one drummer dead and billy really kills it on this song and throughout this entire concert and tour he sounds good he sounds locked in going solo so two anecdotes about that number one he says in his book that something that he did differently for this tour compared to the days before and after was he stayed off of cocaine for the entire tour (laughs) (laughs) but no so he said that yeah he didn't want to do coke during this tour uh and so he stayed off it the entire tour and he felt like that made him better at keeping time and being open-eared to what the rest of the band was doing he also tells a story in his biography about when mickey wanted to rejoin the band he voted against it Bill, he was like, I didn't want that. I loved being the only drummer and I thought I was getting like even better at it. And, um, I really, I didn't want it, but everyone kind of overruled him, um, or convinced him to change his vote. And then he was like, and I'm so glad that that happened because I don't think that we would have gone into as creative spaces as we did without Mickey. And, you know, he's my brother and I'm so happy that I got to continue to be to have a relationship with him as close as we did but he admits in the book he was like i didn't want that at all i was really happy being the one drummer so wow yeah i think a lot of fans would agree by the way i think that there are a lot of people who would be like i wish they would have stayed with one drummer and not brought mickey back in i i don't wish that i mean their entire music history was basically done and complete by the time i was born but it does sound good. It does. One drummer dead does sound good. It does. Okay, so that's greatest story ever told. Then we go into Sugary, which is a very solid version of this song. The double keys interplay between Pigpen on the organ and Keith on the keys is really great. I, I like what Pigpen is adding to this song a lot. Really good. Um, but overall, it's just a. It's like a lot of songs in this first set. It's a very tight version without any real soloing. It's There's a business like, like it's a business like sugary where they don't go out and jam. They it's a tight seven minutes and they're they're up and then they're on to the next one. And that doesn't let Jerry show off here. It was, it was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, I could see that. There's a brief solo in the like four thirty range, but honestly it's more Phil and Bobby than it is a Jerry showcase. Mm-hmm. So kind of interesting, but again, I mean, that's a sign of what's to come with this set because this is a real, most of these songs are really tight. Uh, even in the second set, there are some songs that are like that. Uh, they're, they're keeping it pretty, pretty tight throughout this show. You had a theory about that when you and I were talking about this the other day about nerves. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. We'll talk a little bit about my other theory about it later, but for sugary you hear jerry reaching a little bit on the mic like almost trying to do too much and you know first tour opener of a tour in a new continent i wonder if he's just he's trying to impress a little too much instead of just letting the music flow i think it's a great theory and going back to bill's book one thing that he says is that it was a big deal for them to be playing a theater or an arena of any kind at this time in their touring history and that even though the capacity is 12,000, they had 8,000 people. So not a full crowd. They're probably looking out there and seeing open space and empty space for the first time in a while because they were probably maxing out the venues they were playing at throughout the U.S. before this. And 8,000 is a lot of people. 
So not only do you have the unfamiliarity of being in a different country that they'd only been to once for a very brief time before this, but big arena, big space that they were kind of freaked out about based on what Bill's saying about it in his book, not a full crowd. I think that that all kind of makes sense that they would be a little bit more nervous or apprehensive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lead to a bad show. This is still good Grateful Dead music. To use Jim and Marilyn's vernacular, it is beyond worthy uh, to listen to. Right. But you know, when you, it's hard not to compare it to the next night because it's at the same venue. And the next night, um, I do think is a better show. So, in any case, we go from Sugary into Chinatown Shuffle. I really, really like this song. It's just like a simple, fun tune for Pigpen. The keys are great throughout this song. Uh, Keith is doing a really, really nice job with that. And Pigpen sounds good for this this song. So I liked it. sick from the way he's belting it out and and yeah the keys are solid for this one something that hit me like on a re-listen of this song if there was ever like a bluegrass band to do a cover of this song wouldn't this song kind of sound interesting with a banjo yeah going in it um just as a a weird aside but i was like this would be a cool like bluegrassy version to for someone, some musically gifted dead fan out there. Think about that. That's a great point. Yeah, I wonder if anyone has ever covered it, a bluegrass band, but yeah, that would be really cool. I would kind of dig that. I also wonder if Bob and the Wolf Bros would do this. I don't know how much Bob's vocals would lend themselves to this song. Mm. They wouldn't call it Chinatown Shuffle. They'd call it Chinatown Very Slow Crawl. (laughs) Um (laughs) Okay, so from Chinatown Shuffle, we go into a song that we have amazingly not discussed yet, Me and My Uncle, the most played song in the Grateful Dead's repertoire. This, again, is the version that made it onto Europe 72 Volume 2, that album that was released in 2011. This is a just a tight little zippy version of this song. It's short, but the singing is nice from Bob, and Jerry does find it room to have a pretty nice run in the middle and then the other thing that stood out to me on this is another song where the two keyboards really stand out because Pigpen is filling in space with like very subtle little organ fills that sound really nice and that suit this song very well I think yeah and in the back half of the song it's the rhythm it's the you know it's the drum the bass and Bobby just locking it down moving it right along. And like you said, it's, it's short. It's a short version. It's, it's tight. And this is not really one of my favorite dead songs, but this version, I see why they picked it for the volume two album. I mean, this sounds good. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's not one of my favorite dead songs either. I think for some of the same reasons why I'm not a big Jed head that it, 
the versions sound mostly the same to me. But yeah, I thought that this one sounded good. I enjoyed it. And um, uh, from me and my uncle, they go into our first, again, China Rider. Yeah, how have we not talked about this yet? But welcome. I don't know. Yeah. This is, I don't even know. Like each of these songs is about five minutes long. This is a 10 minute total China Rider, Mm -hmm. which is very short. And... Well, would you prefer to talk about each song individually or talk about it together? No, let's talk about it as a whole. I okay. mean, it's it, it's not like we can do too much. Like, like you said, there's only 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the So the first five, the China portion is good. It's it's very nice for a short version. The What you were saying about me and my uncle, the rhythm kind of holding it down, same with this the drums and bass, especially during the one minute transitionary period from like four minutes into China into Ryder, uh, that the drums and bass are notice notably good during that part. And that, that whole transition is really great. The four minute mark into Ryder. And then in, I know you Ryder that early period, good old grateful dead vocal harmony is in full effect. You got Mm -hmm. Phil, Bobby and, jerry just sounding really nice together with those stacked vocals and um the then it gets kind of quiet and when it does the drum and key interplay stood out to me i thought that it was really great It's a good both both of these songs. I think it's a good version. I I think that the rider is a little bit better than the China Cat Sunflower. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I wish almost that those songs were separated on heady version. Although I get why they're not. They're always almost always played together. Like on Deddy version, a great website that some of you may know of, <laughs> uh, where people oh, what can, a company man. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> where people can vote on dead and company versions of songs that they love dead and company has only ever played these songs together. They've never separated them. And so, you know, it makes sense to stack them together for that because there would be no call to vote for one without the other. But if I could have voted for just this, I know you rider, I would have voted it up. And with the China cat in the beginning, cause I love that song. I mean, it's still good, but I, I wouldn't be like, that was good enough that I'm going to go to Heady version and vote on it. So that's kind of my feeling. It is cool that, especially within the I Know You Rider, they find some space to open it up quite a bit for only five minutes. Next song is Big Boss Man. Um, so back to Pigpen. They do, um, throughout this show, at least the first set, they do the whole... Bob, Jerry, Pigpen, Bob, Jerry, Pigpen, uh, <laughs> rotation. Um, and I think that they start to lose that a little bit more as the, con- as the tour goes on because Pigpen isn't, he's starting to feel worse for the wear, but it works nicely on this first set. The pacing ends up being really good. 
Big Boss Man, solid performance. Then the tape cuts and we miss the end. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't have much more about it. I mean, once again, Pigpen is on it. At this point in the show, Pigpen is sounding better than Jerry and Bob. Like he is really crushing it on the vocals. And then just, I've said it before about Pigpen. I, I love bringing the harmonica in once in a while to the dead sound mixes it up helps diversify it and this is the number 12 version of the song and heady version so a, a, a good solid big boss man yeah i like the song of his of his uh songs that he does too i'm sure that you were a little bit disappointed that we didn't get a love light on this <laughs> show i'm trying to see how many times they played that on this tour oh wow only three times actually they only played three love lights of the 22 shows um, that's surprising. I guess I've, I'm sure I've just heard all three of them and that's why I thought that it was more common than it is. I wonder if he just maybe didn't have the energy for that. Yeah, maybe, you know, the travel, the jet lag with him, you know, feeling that way. He might've been like, I can't, I can't talk about jerking off for 24 minutes today. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. So from Big Boss Man, we go into Black Throated Wind, a song that um, one of my favorite Bob original songs, actually. I really like this song quite a bit, and um, I was happy to welcome it to Working Man's Pod. This is the first time we've had a chance to talk about it. Yeah, and it's a it's a nice bluesy groove that I don't know if they've quite figured it out yet, but Phil has figured it out. He is holding Bob's hand along this entire song and he sounds so good here yeah that's that's really interesting um I I noted that Phil sounded great too he's very his bass is just like super bubbly throughout this song it's just yeah that's a good word and it it sounds great Bill and Keith also sound really good I think that they've got this song kind of down as well and it makes sense because they were both well all three of them were the studio musicians when they recorded this just a few months before oh well there you go so yeah yeah, they were there for the kind of inception and the creative birth of this song so it makes sense that they would be really locked in with it bob in his vocals he's really laying it on thick in this song there's a description of bob that i've heard where they talk about he found his groove with the band when he decided to become the band's quote screaming rocker i think uh sugar magnolia being like the best example of that maybe but there's a lot of that energy in this song and he's really given it his all with the vocals. Yeah. And you talked about this as one of the uh, songs before this, the version that they played the next night um, is better than this one. And it was tough not to compare that in my head, but this is a, this is a pretty good black throated wind. The one that they played tomorrow was a really good one. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's another song in just a few that I really feel that way about. But the next song is Loser, another song we haven't talked about, and another song that I just adore.
kind of like how Deal, like whenever Deal's in the set list, we are always like happy. Loser, I always like, I always look forward to it. And I don't know why, it's not my favorite Dead song. It's, I don't know, I just, I like, I like the sound. Yeah, it does. It sounds really good. And it's like, it makes sense that this song was on the Garcia album because it feels related in many ways to the Working Man's Dead songs that had come just, you know, a year and change before the Garcia album came out. Like if this song had been on Working Man's Dead, it would have been like, okay, that makes sense. Same aesthetic, you know, American West vibe Mm -hmm. and just a good song, good storytelling. I think that this might be the peak of Bob's rhythm guitar in this first set. And that's really saying something because he's great this entire show. But I really, really love what he's doing and his interplay with different people throughout the show. There's a part in the middle when what he's doing with Phil sounds awesome. And then there's another part where he and Keith seem to be really grooving with each other. And so I really like his rhythm on this song. And then we get um, an Honest to God solo from Jerry as well. It starts out a bit sleepy and then gains energy as it goes and turns out to be, I think, a a pretty nice solo. Yeah, and then tying that in with your point like when bob and jerry end the solo together what bob does with the drums like the the three of them kind of harmonize into this big moment at the end and it's it's really nice i think part of the reason i like this song so much is jerry's high vocals juxtaposed with the like melancholy tone and the lonely desperation vibe lyrics and i think it just it melts together really well that makes sense that is i've never thought of it that way but that does make sense it's it's a cool kind of contrasting song Mm -hmm. next song is one of your favorites i believe yeah like always puts a smile on my face deal loser trucking and then mr charlie i love mr charlie yeah me too this might be my favorite pig pen song uh, as far as like his shorter songs, at least. I think I'm with you too. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, this is a very solid version, but it is overshadowed by the next night. The one that they play the following night is the third song, the first Big Pen song of the set. So this this version, let's go back to this one real quick. Top 20 on Heady version. They only played about 50 versions of this song. So, you know, that puts it in the top half. The following night, April 8th, is like a top five, I think. It's So what's the difference? Number one, it's a little bit faster. And number two, I would describe it as more sharp, more deliberate. They are more like on it uh, the following night. But that's not to say that this is not a good version because it is. It's just the one the next night is like a special version of this song. And... Uh, it's the one that's included on Europe 72. So, you know, obviously the band thought that it was pretty special as well, the one from April 8th. Jerry has a nice little solo, little run on this song around the two-minute mark uh, that sounds good. And then the end of this song I found quite informative because everyone in the band, you can hear at different points, Phil, Bob, and Jerry all being like, can you guys hear us? What about the people in the back? Can you hear us? And then they all ask them to, they ask the, crew to turn up the PA so what do I make of this 
I think that the crowd maybe wasn't fully vibing with them at this point in the show, you know, or it was just maybe some nerves on their part. And then they're looking out into this audience of unfamiliar faces in a different country and being like, Oh, I don't know. You know, they haven't necessarily mastered the arena show yet. Um, and so maybe they are more like apprehensive a little bit. And then you hear that expressed in their being like, can you guys hear us? You know, it's like a comedian being like, is this thing on? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I thought that, that was interesting because both of us, when we talked about this before the show, said that this concert lacked a little bit of the uh, joie de vivre, a little of the uh, je ne sais quoi of uh, the, the next night and some of the shows throughout this tour. Yeah, and I think both those theories are probably true. And a third one to mix in there, I mean, they're probably just trying to cater and pander to a new audience they want you know they want them to like us so you know oh let's sing you know make it seem like we're doing it for them it could be all three you know like we're nervous as shit no one's clapping hey can you guys hear us (laughs) (laughs) yeah it could be so then the next song uh beat it on down the line they really bring the energy really i think that this song kind of starts to bring the high energy of the first set that then takes them all the way through the end of it. Um, so it's high energy in literally every way, the singing, the playing, but the drumming stands out as particularly, you know, peppy, I think on this song. And um, I think this is a good version of beat it on down the line. Yeah. The drums keep it upbeat. Keys keep it groovy. Uh, and, and I noted no more crooning here, just a ton of energy to follow. Yeah. So right on it with that point. Yeah. Yeah. And they keep that energy up for the next song, Tennessee Jed, which can be less energetic, but not this one. It's, it's got some really good energy. I think that like, for example, the 90 version that we just talked about is a little bit slower and more sing along E. Yes. This one is more like, we're going to play the shit out of this song. <laughs> yes. It's kind of weird when Tennessee Jet is one of the longest songs in set one. Two shows um, in a row that we've talked about that that's been the case, though. It yeah. was the longest in set one of uh, July 12th, 1990. And now um, this one, too. You're right. It's very odd that we've gotten two shows in a row where that unique twist uh, applies. And I think that is building to my other critique of set one as a whole Um, i'll talk about it here because it actually doesn't apply to the next song and the last song of set one it felt like they were so we talked about we think they're probably a little nervous as as you would be but then it also kind of feels like they're trying to mimic the studio versions of their songs a little too much like the grateful dead are a jam band they're supposed to go off in space they're supposed to you know riff for an extra solo here and there for an extra four or five minutes. And it feels like they were purposefully not doing that in set one. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're catering to a new audience in a new tour in a new continent for the first time. But it felt like they were, they didn't take a lot of chances that up until this point, and this, this is going to change going forward, but up until this point, um, Jerry's guitar playing and guitar solos almost felt kind of safe. Like he wasn't ripping it off. He wasn't shredding. He wasn't taking some weird extra chance. Um, 
and, and that's kind of my critique of Tennessee Jed too here. It it felt like they were playing it safe, and it doesn't sound bad when they do that. It just doesn't sound like they were they're pushing their limits. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that you're right. Something that I like about the Grateful Dead's music and something that makes shows stand out to me is when it feels like they are at any given moment in a jam or a song about half a second from veering completely off the rails <laughs> and just losing it. Like that danger of like, well, this sounds good, but it's also like, ah, it could get crazy. Um, and that's something that's great about Primal Dead in the 60s uh, where it's like, whoa, like this caution. It's, you know, dipping in and out of the, you know, the upside down. This is on the verge of chaos. And this is a very not chaotic first set. Yeah. And that's about to change with the next song. But until here, it's really not taking any chances. Yeah. So one last thing about Tennessee Jed, the ending, like the final minute of the song is great. Uh, It's great playing. And I wrote best moment of the show so far, but not for long. The next song is playing in the band, which we also amazingly have never talked about before now. They played this song 721 times live. That 720 that 721 plays contains multitudes. There are so many different ways that they have, could, and did play this song over the years that they played it. But this one is really good. So it starts with introducing Donna. She says, howdy, y'all. And with that, Dave, welcome to the Donna Scream era on playing in the band. This version, like a lot of the playing in the bands that we see on Europe 72, I think they played this song every single night of the tour. It's just like these tight 10 to 12 minute versions of this song. And I, they don't get into like, chaosville or maybe they do but like they don't go like in this version at least out to space they keep it very very tight but it's just phenomenal playing throughout they like the i don't know if you've actually have ever heard this term but there's a term that deadheads use tiger for when the band is getting to the point in a jam where it's like peaking and getting like real crazy like the band just they hit tiger they went tiger at this point the time from the beginning of this song to Tiger is like five seconds. <laughs> they like start and then like get to like the hot part like immediately. And then they have you like grabbed with this high energy and they do not let go for no. 10 minutes. Yeah, jamming, driving, powerful. Like you said, right off the rip, um, the Donna Whale sounded great. Loved it too. And what was nice was listening to it, building up to it, and kind of in my head, I was ready for it. 
and then it hit and I was like, oh, nice. She's back. I actually had a slightly different experience because I was like, has she gotten to that yet? Like this is only five shows into her career with the dead. Does she have the scream like locked down at this point or is that something that came later? So it was like a pleasant surprise to me. I, I didn't know if we were going to get it or not. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, folks. There are some versions of her screaming that I'm like, I not for me. <laughs> Sometimes it really kind of interrupts uh, a good vibe. Or I will say the versions of this song that I first heard were without Donna, I think. And so um, they were from like maybe the, no, they couldn't have been. They must have been with Donna. Um, well, in any case, uh, I'm not saying that Donna's shriek on playing in the band is always great, but in this one, I really liked it. And it was a yeah. welcome. It was like welcoming an old friend. Like, oh, I haven't heard that in a little while. Glad to hear it. This version of playing in the band was so good that it made me question whether I prefer shorter or longer playing in the band renditions. Hmm. And this one was is tied for 75th on heady version of 721 versions. So basically a top 10%. And I still think it's underrated. I think this is a phenomenal plan in the band. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm not saying it should be top five, but it top 30 probably should though. move up like top 5%. Yeah. 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 So there's one other song in set one. That's not in the album. Uh, the band actually closed set one with Casey Jones. And for whatever reason that did not make the album. You can listen to it on the archive. Again, the audience recording is really pretty tough. It's a tidy little six-minute version of Casey Jones. The crowd is really into it. They're excited to hear it. Uh, and that that makes sense because that song was kind of a hit. And so it makes sense that the crowd would be ready for it and excited to hear it. Because the audience version is pretty rough, I don't think that there's really much room for, you know, in-depth discussion of, how they're playing just cause it's, it's hard to make out. It sounds like you're listening to it like from another room almost. That's how choppy or muffled the sound is. So anyways, that's, that's the end of set one for me playing in the band is the clear cut yeah, of set uh, one. Absolutely. And may, maybe that's why they cut it. Maybe just to end set one on that great moment. I don't know. Uh, set two begins with the most common set two opener of 1972 trucking bob's little intro we're gonna start this set off with a song that went straight to the top of the charts number one numero uno in turlock california nobody else heard it but anyway made me laugh (laughs) yeah same (laughs) um and this song kicks off a monster 56 minute jam this segment of the show trucking through wharf rat was released on the four cd box stepping out with the grateful dead that was comprised of their music from this this tour but specifically the england shows and this was the section of that concert of this concert that was selected it makes up almost all of disc three so trucking Pigpen's organ is pretty noticeable on this song, I think especially in the beginning and then during the solo, uh, around like the six to seven minute mark, you can really hear the organ and it sounds good. Um, And then also, aside from playing in the band where Jerry is like really just crushing on the guitar, this is then I think his first like real great solo break of the show is during Truckin'. It's kind of amazing that this song 
feels more jammed out than playing in the band, but it does. Yeah. And like you said, it's about, it's about Bob and Pigpen for like the first two minutes of the song. And then they really go into a good spot with it after that. Honestly, I feel like I should have more to say about this song than I do. But after like the four minute mark, I just sat back and smiled and enjoyed the ride. As you should. Jerry and Jerry and Phil at the seven ish minute mark, like what they're doing back and forth with each other was really cool. But yeah, I just sat back and enjoyed it. Enjoyed the ride. really the first song where they get into any sort of a like spacey psych rock segment which they do a little bit it's kind of they have this like breakdown right before the last verse where they like bring the sound down they like bring the energy down a little bit then back into the last verse and then it comes out with this like spacey psychedelic section that's kind of cool but yeah overall i thought that this was a a really a solid version of trucking and a great way to set off uh set two and credit to kreutzman for that like following along with that not it's not really like a tempo change but the volume changes in the song have got to be hard for him like to go like super quiet during the verse loud presence during the chorus and like you said this this cool little wind down that they went into and he's not he's not overstepping and he's not falling behind he's like right there with them to do it however they want to do it he was a good a good job accompanying them on this one yeah and he continues that throughout the show or sorry this set of the show including into the song after trucking which is drums so i always love an extended drums lead into the other one and that's what we get here it's about a little under three minutes this drum break the first 45 ish 50 seconds bill is kind of like all around it but not on it yet and then right around the one minute mark he really hits his stride and just gets cooking on this little drum solo and then just does not let up for like the last minute and 45 seconds of this short little drum segment with like 15 seconds to go he begins kind of the slow steady the other one lead in and then phil joins in with the and when the full band comes back in to start the other one, it is like an explosion of everyone just like coming in hot with uh, just a tremendous introduction to the other one. Yeah, we start off with Phil and Bob. Like their interplay is great the first minute, two minutes of the song. And then it kind of like transitioned to Jerry and the Keys bringing everybody along um and it was kind of cool how they like passed the baton in a way um yeah it wasn't like you know bob just all of a sudden started playing bad but like he was really working with phil and then he kind of let jerry go on and and be the the one to kind of drive him along and then it got pretty spacey after that hot beginning yeah 
it by like the six minute mark they've really melted into that psych rock ooze um before then i think it's jerry that kind of brings them back into the other one like the other one groove around like the 720 mark and then the rest of the band has fully joined him again by like the eight minute mark i think that this version is like 18 minutes long yeah i I agree with what you're saying about the beginning though bob's rhythm is excellent like it's like these little adornments that he's putting on what uh, Phil's doing, like mm-hmm. you were saying in the beginning. And then what Jerry's doing um, by the middle, like you were talking about once he, as you said, like passes the baton. That's excellent. Um, and it's also aided by Pigpen's organ. He's doing some nice things on the organ uh, throughout this song too. Overall, I mean, it's just a really good version of the other one. I, it's the most upvoted song of this concert on Hetty version. It's 28 minutes long if you exclude the El Paso in the middle because um, we are going to get a, the other one, El Paso, the other one sandwich. And this is the the beginning of the other one, which is unique. This is the only time that they did that, that they sandwiched El Paso between the other one. They need to do it more often. <laughs> it's really cool. And yeah. really unexpected too. Like, yeah, the other one is just a song I usually associate with like early, like more hard rocky and then into this soft, beautiful El Paso. Yeah, the transition is nice. The transition yeah. into El Paso um, and the transition out. But yeah, I, I think that, so again, this we both really like this first part of the other one. It's the first time that they really go out into space and start to kind of feel for the edges of where they can live in this concert. Do you think they like wanted to go into Dark Star, but they didn't want to scare everybody away? So like, <laughs> let's do it with a, a different one. Let's go out to space and uh, I don't know, uh, the other one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that if you look at like the set construction from this concert, I think that every concert either had the other one or Dark Star. And so, you know, this night you get the other one. Night two, you get Dark Star and everyone leaves happy. It's actually yeah. funny that you say that there's a, uh, a review of this show from someone who was in the barn, Jean Steinman. This was her first Grateful Dead show. And she says, the Empire Pool was a huge venue. And I remember being knocked out by this concert. The songs, the jams, Jerry's guitar playing and pig strutting his stuff. It was like entering another world. I was a teenager then and with only live dead to use for reference. So I didn't know any of the songs. Everything was new. I was a bit disappointed that there was no dark star. As soon as I could, I bought a ticket for my girlfriend and I to go to the Lyceum a few weeks later. So some of the some of the English heads who were familiar with Live Dead, they actually wanted Dark Star. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's kind of that's an interesting theory, but I, I do think it's just that this was an other one night, and then the next night was a Dark Star night. <laughs> um, but yeah, so good version of the other one into El Paso. I like the transitions in and out they feel really natural despite the fact that this wasn't a, you know, a set list that was normal for them in any way. And El Paso has a real, has a vibe that's real similar to the first set. Very tight. It's pretty slow actually for El Paso's, but it's, it's good. And it, it just kind of, it works oddly nicely in the middle of another one sandwich. Yeah. It, it works so nicely that you wonder why, why didn't they do this more? And if the thought was like, well, they wanted to split time with the three singers. I mean, they go from truck into the other one to El Paso back to the other one. So they, they're comfortable doing four Bob songs in a row. 
which stood out after the set one that was so like engineered to be one two three one two three one two three between the three of them so hearing bob go for like 30 minutes in a row i was like huh wonder why they structured it that way even more it's uh it's like 45 minutes in a row if you include the truck in yeah 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 um this this entire jam suite from trucking through wharf rat is 56 minutes long i mean that's a large portion of this show this show's just a a few minutes under three hours long and so you know it's a third of the show is this big mega jam to start set two um but we're we're not quite there yet at wharf rat we still have the part two of the other one the conclusion to what they began it starts with really really good energy and it's interesting because like i said the version of el paso is pretty slow and so we get to felina goodbye the last lyric and then little kind of you know ending bit and then they just like crash into the other one It's not like a like a pretty or an elegant transition, but it's really effective. It's like they do 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 stop snare boom charge right back in yeah <laughs> yeah and then Bill kind of keeps the energy up in the beginning. He's got these really cool drum rolls throughout the beginning section of this the other one conclusion. It just adds a lot to the energy that's going on there. It's got that you know like there's something primal about drum rolls where it's just like oh man here we go. Uh, that's really cool. It's amazing to me. This version is eight minutes long ish. It's amazing how many different tempos they play with throughout those eight minutes. It's just like up and down and up and down. Um, it's really cool and very exploratory. It stands. The word exploratory is a good point to say it stands in such a contrast from set one, which they're not exploring anything. They're like, boom, hitting it with, you know, four or five, six minute versions of songs. Yep. And now it, it it sounds like we wanted to go get lost in space, and actually they might have gone too far. They're they're lost in a spacey jam in this second bit of the other one, and they don't know how to get out. And Phil actually pulls them out at about the six thirty mark. He just starts hitting the verse, um, like bum, 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 bum. yeah, on, on the bass. He just starts hitting that to be like, okay, guys, we're still playing the other one. Don't forget, <laughs> like. <laughs> That's, that's what this song is called. And then the band's like, oh, yeah, okay. And, and then they get pulled out of it, which it was not, that's not a criticism. That was fun to listen to. It was like, yeah. oh, man, they don't know where they're going anymore. No, you're so right. It's from like the three or four minute mark to that point that you're talking about where it's just like, where yeah. have you gone? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it is interesting uh, to listen to. And then from the other one, they go into Warfrat to conclude this big old second set jam this is a really strong version of a great grateful dead song in the jesse jarno who many of you know from many things not the least of which being the good old grateful dead cast he in his review of this show described this song as stately a stately version of Warfrat, and i think that that makes a lot of sense 
because number one, it's a very understated performance. There are parts where they make their instruments about as quiet as they can be. You know, they really bring it down. And the pacing is just, feels very deliberate and yeah, just really good. I also think that this song benefits tremendously from having only one drummer. A lot of times the ending segment of this song with two drummers just sounds like a little bit too busy for a kind of somber song. And with one drummer, the, like I said, there's a part where they get really quiet and what you were saying about Bill being comfortable doing that and trucking, he feels even more comfortable with it in this song. And it just, it suits it so, so well. I, I really, really, really liked this version of Warfrat. Did you catch the part at the end where they're like, hey guys, the, the venue doesn't want you to stand in the aisles, so you got to go back to your seats. So I think the the crowd is, is loving it as much as you did. Yeah, they're getting into it. And yeah, that was kind of a funny thing. Someone's like, the cops need more space to dance in the aisles or something like that. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a funny little interlude. I, I what I wonder is, would this jam have kept going if they hadn't had to do that? Um, or oh, hmm. did they intend to stop at the end of Warfrat? I don't know. We may yeah. never know. We might. We definitely don't know. My guess is that from the first set where they were kind of trying to just hit as many songs as they could to show off for their new fans. My guess is it was going to end, but that's a good point. They could have done another four or five minutes with this and really gotten something beautiful. Well, they, they go into something really great from Warfrat, which yeah. is the first time we've talked about Ramble on Rose. This is tied for 45th on Heady version, which I would describe as criminally underrated. Ooh. I think this is a phenomenal version of Ramble on Rose. They introduced it into their touring repertoire in October 71, right around the time that Keith joined the band. And then they played it 300 times uh, throughout their touring history, all the way through 1995, never really taking long breaks away from it. I just found this to be a phenomenal version of this song. Jerry's putting some extra stank on his vocals. <laughs> He's like, you know, making it a little bit more colorful. But the playing, I just thought was great. I, I really loved this version. And I guess I get that like top 45, that's in the top 15% of the versions on for Heady version. But I think this is like a, maybe even like a top 10 period. Rose. I loved it. I wasn't as hot as high on it as you were, but after about two or three minutes, they start to really get hot and really figure it out. Um, I think they were a little... They were trying to figure it out a little bit at the beginning. But Rambo on Rose always has a special spot for me because I think it's one of the first dead songs I ever heard. I think Uncle Kyle was playing this one time when I was like 12 or 13. You know, and maybe Touch of Grey, like on the radio, maybe I heard that and just didn't realize it. But I think this is one of the first dead songs I was ever introduced to. Wow. Shout out to Uncle Kyle. Oh, yeah. This song could be a real good, like, lake house vibe in, like, an afternoon. There's some grilling going on. That's where it would have been, yeah, like, at the uh, the lake house that our family uh, co-owns with Uncle Kyle. But I- I'm, not, I'm not 100% positive of that, but I've always, 
I've always known this song to be one of the first Dead songs I ever listened to. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I like this version quite a bit. And then the next song that they go into is uh, a Bobby Rocker, Sugar Magnolia, which, you know, despite the Days Between story, we have not talked about on this show to date. I'm a big fan of this version of Sugar Mag. Me too. Like how high you were on Ramble on Rose. Just plug that into my analysis here. I was really digging this. What what were the, some of the things that you really liked about it? Just that Bob, sound, Bob sounds excellent start to finish. Like he, he is on it. He is pumped to play this song. And then with him, Kreutzmann is just right there with him the whole time, just giving him back everything that Bob needs from the drum set in the back. So those two things. Um, and then we get hot for Sunshine, Sunshine Daydream. Our notes are like identical for this song. <laughs> so um, one thing that I, I really like too is Pigpen switching to the Guero Shaker for it rather than organ because this song does not need the organ but the like little scratching uh scratchy sound with the guru actually sounds great billy's drumming phenomenal like literally i mean just tremendous i mean everyone honestly everyone in the band (laughs) has like a great moment in this song yeah but billy's drumming stands out and then like you're saying about the sunshine daydream not only is it hot and fantastic I love that Bob has not decided to go full falsetto mode on that portion yet, (laughs) which is like, you know, that's fine too. But like, I like this better. Like it's straining his vocal cords a little bit more, maybe in some ways, but it just sounds better. The weird thing is, so actually before I say this, there's like a full stop before the sunshine daydream coda. Mm -hmm. And then Keith does like a full slide across his piano. That sounds so cool. that donna's not in the sunshine daydream i was kind of questioning that wouldn't she like bob if you want to go high with the vocals here have donna do that she can do that and then you can hit it from the harmony underneath i i don't know why yeah and and she would a lot throughout the 70s so i thought that was kind of curious but i guess it's because she's newer to the band and maybe hadn't figured out exactly where she fits in on all the different songs yet yeah maybe this was a song Bob really was like, this is my song and she didn't want to like overstep too early in their musical relationship. I don't know. Could be. Whereas with playing in the band, I think she was even in the studio version. So that would make sense that she would feel more ownership and comfort getting into that one. So great sugar mag. Happy that we got to talk about it. I think that's my mom's favorite grateful dead song. So shout out to her. Nice. Shout out Lisa. (laughs) Into the closing segment of this show. 
set two ends with not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away. Uh, absolute chalk set to closer in 1972, but a nice version. We, we're back into set one vibes here because the each chunk of the not fade away is only three minutes long. Well, and even going back to Ramble on Rose, I think the longest song from Ramble on Rose to the end is like six minutes. Like, we, yeah, we were back into that, you know, six or seven minute tight business-like versions. What's cool though, the first segment of Not Fade Away is only three minutes long and yet they find space to like do cool stuff in it. Like there's like a going down the road feeling bad and bid you goodnight segment in the middle of it where they kind of hit both of those themes uh, Jerry does on his guitar. And um, also this is a fast version of Not Fade Away, this mm-hmm. first section. It's like, it's really zippy and, and peppy and that is really cool. And then that carries into going down the road feeling bad, which is a fast version of that as well. And um, this version, like Sugar Mag, I feel like each and every member of the band has at least one standout moment during this song, including Donna, including Pigpen on the organ. All of them have a moment where it's like, oh, I, I hear what you're doing there. And it's, it sounds great. Everyone is on for going down the road feeling bad. The transition is solid. And then, like you said, everybody is putting max effort pig pen in the back on the organ that I kind of wish the soundboard turned his knob up a little bit because he doesn't shine through, but when he sneaks through in the back, he sounds really good helping out. And I think the the person we've talked about the least in the show is Jerry, but Jerry, it, it took him a while. He's finally like locked in on guitar. Every note in this song that he's playing is confident, which I think is a a change from set one and purposeful. And that this going down the road, feeling bad. This is like, this is as good as this song gets. And this is a fantastic going down. I agree there in the final minute, he goes back to that bid you good night theme and talk about like purposeful. The way that he's playing that is just great. Mm -hmm. I, I love that almost as much as I love the transition back into not fade away. I think that that's part of what makes this such a great version is that, you know, this, most of the versions of this song, if not all maybe are with not fade away. And so it's almost like you can't fully judge how good it is without some reference to what preceded and what followed. And, um, the transition back into not fade away led by Bill's drums, which is as it should be, is just excellent it's a perfect cap to a great version of going down the road feeling bad and actually that song and playing in the band like this not fade away segment and then playing in the band are the two parts of this show that i have gone back to and listened to the most since i started listening to it not fade away uh the second part just as tight as the first it's only about three minutes long but it's really good really nice way to end the set anything else on that portion just that the keys were stand out in both not fade away one and not fade away two yeah i i think sugar mag and not fade away is where keith was the best in this show uh then for an encore one more saturday night the band doesn't leave the stage for very long it's kind of funny phil says he says as they're two hours and 55 minutes into the show Oh God, that made me laugh. Um, and then Bob says, listen, if you like rock and roll, you'll love our new single. 
you'll want to run right out and buy it next week. And then he starts laughing and you hear uh, Jerry and Phil laughing in the background too. Uh, obviously because this song is off of Ace, which would not come out for another month. And so he's <laughs> a little tongue in cheek, uh, you know, go buy my album. This is a, a good version of this song. It's not on a Saturday night. Uh, the next night when Bob plays it, he says, this is a song about tonight. <laughs> and then they play it as the encore. Um, but I love the twinkly keys at the start from Keith. They sound really good. A nice little intro into the song. And then Bob is just like singing about as hard as he can. It sounds like he's like really straining his vocal cords, but that's just a preview of the next night when he is like screaming so hard that he is losing his voice during the song as the encore. Um, so, you know, Bob is going full rocker mode to end the set. He's not leaving anything on the table and, um, yeah, nice, fun, energetic encore to cap the show. The, the first show of what would be a great tour. Legendary tour. Anything else on one more Saturday night? No. Um, I've seen it live with dead and company. I think there are some people who are like, you know, if you go to a concert on a Saturday, like, oh, you know, we're, we know what the encore is. I, I'm sorry. I, I think that's so great. I think that's so neat. And it's such a great encore song. High energy leaves you feeling going home on a good note. Yeah, there was a Dead & Company moment. For those of you who don't care about Dead & Company, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to bear with us for a second. <laughs> there was a show that they did last year, the last Saturday show of their summer tour at Wrigley Field, where they played this song at the end of set one and to as a counterpoint to what you're saying because i generally agree with you but i was listening to that show live and when you hear them play one more saturday night as the set one closer it's like oh shit well what are we in for then (laughs) because if that's what they did for this set closer that means that's not the encore so what are they planning for the encore then yeah um and that one was really special because they did broke down palace into uh, touch of gray closing the summer tour the same way they opened it with touch that's that's the other cool thing about knowing that this is the this is generally the saturday night encore is if you hear it before that in the show you're like whoa well now now we're on to something here um something special's coming and that's exactly what happened at the night two of wrigley field uh last year with dead and company all right, Dave, let's let's bring this puppy back home. What do you got? Final thoughts, notes, questions, comments, concerns. We talked about how much, kind of much more we like to set two and set one. What songs are coming onto your imaginary playlist? And what doesn't make the cut but still gets a shout out? Playing in the Band is coming onto my imaginary playlist. Oh, that surprises me. I loved it. I listened to it probably eight times as we were preparing for this show twice of which was during a workout because I listened to it as I was just like listening to the concert and I loved the energy for like a workout tempo so much that I just repeated it and played it again and um yeah I I really like that so I think that that's the one for me so I'll take the playing in the band there were a couple that I think were worthy of consideration otherwise I loved like I said ramble on rose um, and then not fade away going down the road, not fade away. I really loved too. And I would consider that one song for this exercise that sweet because it is only in total 12 minutes long or so, maybe a little, maybe like 14 minutes. But, um, so that would have been my backup was not fade away going down the road, not fade away, but I'm taking playing. What about you? I'm 
I'm just mixing them up. If you're going to give me that the Not Fade Away all counts as one song, I'm taking kind of more for the going down the road feeling bad, but I'm, I'm taking that that whole little sweet Not Fade Away going down the road feeling bad. And if you're mad about that, uh, you took a whole cryptical um, other one sweet a couple shows ago. So I'm not mad about you, it. You Go for it. To I think I think that um, it, it's related to what we were saying about like China Rider when we talked about those songs together. There are some Grateful Dead songs and suites of songs that just like yeah fit right exactly. Um, it would feel wrong to to if you just took Going Down the Road. It would be like a bastardized version of what that section of the show <laughs> actually is. So yeah, I'm um, all for it. But. I also I was torn between this and the plan because the plan is is pretty good, um, yeah. but yeah I think this little run at the end does it for me. Yeah, well, a question I haven't asked you uh, the last couple times, but I'm kind of curious about with this show. How would you deploy this show to someone if you wanted to play it for them? Who and in what circumstance? Mm-hmm. I think that I would do it for someone. Hmm, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I would play someone the show, but the fact that set one is so like structured and business-like, I, I don't know that I would introduce a new dead fan like this because like this isn't always what it's like. Yeah. But I guess maybe someone who I would introduce it to someone who had heard a lot of Grateful Dead but hadn't heard a lot of pig pen like earlier dead. I'd be like, like, you know what the dead sound like, but listen to how they incorporated a third singer back in the day. I think that's where if I ever ran into somebody like that, that's how I would approach this. What about you? That makes sense. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, honestly, I think that if I was going, so I'm glad that we did this show um, just because it's, it's fitting that we are talking about the opening show of Europe 72 virtually on the 50 year anniversary like that makes sense but i think that if i were going to show someone one of these two nights at wembley empire pool i would pick the second night i think that it's uh, a little bit stronger and also more evocative of what the grateful dead at their best were doing during this tour yeah that makes sense yeah Um, so i'm excited to talk about that show with uh zach cropper on our bonus episode and um we're going to talk about that and also a number of other Europe 72 related topics. So I hope that you will all listen to that one and I hope that you'll follow us on Twitter at working man's pod, Instagram at working man's underscore pod and write in if you have any feedback, if you have questions, comments, concerns of your own at working man's pod at gmail.com. And on that note, we will bid you good night. And I'll bid you good night. Good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.